Welcome, everyone, to this week's edition of Generation Jihad. I'm Bill Raggio, and always I'm joined this week with my colleague and friend, Tom Jocelyn. How you doing, everybody? While everyone rightfully remains focused on the threat of the coronavirus, it has been a busy week in the world of terrorism. We're going to switch things up this week and discuss several recent events. On the docket today is a reward issued by the State Department for a top-level Hezbollah commander who is directing Iranian-backed Shia militias in Iraq. And Bill, we're going to talk about your time in Iraq just a little bit and tracking those Shia militias. And we're also going to talk about a series of infographics that were released by an Al-Qaeda-affiliated media outfit that are intended to highlight Al-Qaeda's global operations, including Afghanistan, where we know Al-Qaeda really doesn't exist anymore. Right, Bill? Wink, wink. Right. Of course, Al-Qaeda has never been in Afghanistan. Not, not in years. Not in years, according to Taliban apologists. Go ahead, Bill. Next. This week, uh, the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan released a video that exposes its historical links to the Afghan Taliban and other foreign terrorist groups. This is very timely, uh, given our discussion last week on Generation Jihad about the Pakistani Taliban and Pakistan's uh, t- ties to various Taliban groups, good Taliban, bad Taliban, etc., yeah, we're also going to talk about the, this plot in Germany that was thwarted. It was an ISIS plot against U.S. military facilities there. And there are a lot of interesting angles, but we're going to focus on Tajikistan and ISIS's recruiting in Central Asia, because that's sort of a story that we think is going to keep coming up. We're also going to talk about other ISIS-related news in Afghanistan and Syria, so there's a lot to cover. So, Bill, why don't we start with the State Department's $10 million bounty for this guy you've been tracking for a while, this Hezbollah commander in Iraq, and tell us what that's all about. Yeah, yeah. So on April 10th, the State Department's Rewards for Justice program, they issued a um, $10 million bounty for information on Mohammed Kawatharni. He's a Hezbollah commander who had stepped, stepped up his activities in Iraq since the U.S. killed Qasem Soleimani, who, of course, was the commander of Quds Force. This is Iran's expeditionary military unit that directs its insurgencies throughout the Middle East. And uh, the U.S. killed Soleimani in an airstrike in early January. Um, Kawatharni is a a known figure. Treasury designated him as a global terrorist back in 2013. And uh, I want to put this uh, this $10 million reward into perspective. This places him at at the top tier of state's most wanted terrorists. There's only one individual who has a higher bounty, and that is al-Qaeda's emir, Ayman al-Zawahiri. So, so Kawatharni is on, on par with, who, these are individuals who also have $10 million b- bounties. Saif al-Adil from al-Qaeda, he was their military commander and a top-level leader. Um, Yassin al-Suri, al-Qaeda's operations chief in Iran, another senior al-Qaeda leader. Yeah, we don't but, actually know where he is today, right? Yassin right, al-Suri. Yeah. He's, a guy, he's a guy we're going to talk about in the future because uh, he's disappeared off the radar, but I'm curious as to where he is. But yeah. He is a ghost. Um, Lashkari Taiba's Hafez Saeed, and also the Taliban's deputy emir, Siraj Sarajuddin Haqqani. There are others on the list, but I think that that tells you exactly what state thinks of uh, Kawatharni and, and his importance in this global jihad. And at the very minimum, it, it, it shows you what the State Department's priorities are anyway. In terms exactly. Of going after these guys uh, on sanctions lists and, and otherwise. Yeah. And, and in the in the designation, um, and this this is a quote, they they describe Kawatharni as a senior leader of Hezbollah's forces in Iraq, and he has taken over um, some of the political coordination of Iran-aligned paramilitary groups formerly organized by Soleimani, of course, as the, the slain Quds Force commander. Um, 
Soleimani was instrumental in standing up these pro-Iranian Shia militias. Hezbollah has played a key role in this. Um, Iran used the um, U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003 to up its game. So it, it always has historically tried to support Shia groups inside of Iraq against Saddam Hussein. But um, the, the U.S. invasion in 2003 really opened up space for the, for the Iranians to expand their influence. And to do this, Iran has leaned on Hezbollah, which, is, which Hezbollah, of course, is Iran's premier proxy. Um, and these militias were organized with the help of Hezbollah leaders to, um, to be organized along the same lines as Lebanese Hezbollah. Um, these militias are responsible for the deaths of over 600 American soldiers during the U.S. presence in, in Iraq. Most recently, these militias stepped up attacks on U.S. bases. They've, in, in the last year, they've killed three U.S. soldiers and contractors, as well as a British soldier. And uh, at the turn of the year, they attacked the U.S. embassy. This attack on the embassy and the killing of, of U.S. soldiers is what spar, um, spurred the U.S. to kill Qasem Soleimani. So, you know, what's interesting about this is it again demonstrates that Iran's playing uh, two sides of the coin in Iraq as elsewhere at the same time, right? They're playing the military hand, and that's that has political objectives. So it's not just like they're committing attacks for the sake of committing attacks. They have political objectives in Iraq and elsewhere they're trying to achieve, and this guy's a good example of that uh, in terms of the political influence he's attempting to wield there. Yeah, absolutely. So Iran isn't just doing this to kill American soldiers and drive the U.S. out of Iraq. The, as you said, they're, they're trying to expand their influence. They're trying to, um, to get the Iraqi government to, to get into the Iranian sphere. I mean, you could argue it's halfway there already. These militias are very powerful. When the Islamic State took over large areas of Iraq uh, after in 2000, beginning in 2013, um, the Iraqi military failed. The Iraqi police failed. These militias had to step up and fight the Islamic State, and that gave them a lot of cachet, a lot of power. It gave them military power, but it also gave them a lot of political power. And these groups are dangerous. They they don't only threaten groups like the Islamic State or the United States. They'll attack Iraqis, Iraqi politicians, Iraqi generals, and Iraqi police commanders who don't play the game that um, the Iranians want. So it's, it's uh, what Iran is really doing here is they're particularly with the establishment of these religion with these uh, militias is to create the Iraqi version of the IRGC or the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps because with that in that is the true power inside of Iran and the these these militias which are organized under what's called the Popular Mobilization Forces they report directly to the prime minister so it's very important for the Iranians to get a pro-Iranian prime minister they're currently opposing the individual who is being proposed to be the Iraqi um, prime minister because he's not on board with this program I'd expect this guy to leave the country or wind up dead at some point so um, yeah it's it's a it's a the Rand plays a very sophisticated game it's not just military there's a political aspect there's a cultural aspect and there's also an a um a commerce aspect to this as well and um you know it's it's a very and this is one of the reasons why the the precipitous withdrawal of, of u.s forces from iraq in 2011 really opened the door for the iranians to to expand and we you and i tom we warned about this we warned about the rise of these militias how they would be dangerous dangerous um people 
people dismissed us um, and said, no, they'll just be incorporated as part of the political system. They'll, they'll integrate into the Iraqi military and the exact opposite has happened. And we're dealing with this threat. And um, there's one other point I'd like to, to, to bring up about this. And I think this is probably the, the most overlooked aspect. You look at um, Hezbollah, again, which is Iran's premier proxy uh, inside of Lebanon. It has a population of 4 million to recruit from. And a, a large percentage of them are, are Shia, right? And look at what Hezbollah has done regionally. Look at, the, at the, how it opposes Israel and the, the problems and the wars that have broken out. In Iraq, there's about 36 million Iraqis, about 60% of them are Shia. That is the recruiting base that these militias that Iran has to try to get individuals into these militias and into this Iraqi IRGC. It's, it's very dangerous. I don't think people are looking beyond this to see that, that you can have basically Hezbollah you know, times 100, if these militias are able to succeed in what the Iranians are trying to get them to do. And we, we noticed early on, of course, and I know you were, you were uh, hot to trot on this story, uh, Bill, because there was some pushback from people uh, defending sort of the Iranian-backed role of militias in the popular mobilization forces. But I know you were on this very early that uh, Mohandas in particular, Abu Mahdi al-Mohandas, who was the, the last PMF commander, you know, Population Mobilization Forces commander, he was clearly in the Iranian fold. I mean, he was killed alongside Soleimani. And nobody disputes that he was basically an Iranian agent at this point, a Quds Force agent. Um, but this was one of the ways, right, Bill, that they carved out influence within Iraq. They used first the, the 2003 invasion, of course, the U.S. precipitous withdrawal, and then the fight against the Islamic State. They used that sort of triple whammy, really, to expand their military and political footprint in the country. And there's some pushback, of course. They're not, they're not dominant everything, but they do have a lot of influence. But Mohandas and the PMF was one of the ways they did this. They basically used the security forces, the security sector as a way to increase their hand, especially against in the fight against ISIS. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, look, the U.S. listed Mohandas, I believe in 2009, they yeah, identified him as a, they, he was basically Soleimani's right hand. I mean, he was an advisor to Soleimani. He is without a doubt a, a member of Quds Force, you'd see him inside Iran and he was treated as a high-level military commander. Um, the, the um, you know, so Kawatharani isn't the only, again, the only Hezbollah commander to go in and um, to, to advise. There was one individual named Musa Ali Dakduk. He, early on, um, also along with Kawatharani and others, were, were instrumental in establishing the Shia militias. They worked with the Mahdi army, which of course is Muqtada al-Sadr, who, um, you know, a very important religious figure. His father was a very important religious figure and he sort of glommed on to his father's name. Um, they they worked with them and then they the, these, these militias as they exist now, they expanded from that what the U.S. military called the special groups or the Mahdi army special groups. And that's how you got groups like Hezbollah Brigades, which is obviously separate from Hezbollah, Asib al-Haq and Promise Day Brigade, which is actually Mahdi's recent incarnation of the Mahdi army. And they did this intentionally, the, the Iranians, so that they could have basically they didn't put everything, all their eggs into one basket. So if the U.S. decides to target one group, 
um, heavily these other groups are going to exist. It also, and also, um, you know, it, it's sort of a, a force multiplier effect. And it's a very, very clever strategy that the Iranians have. And, and again, what you have now is all these groups report in done under the popular mobilizations forces, again, which was led by Mohandas. So it's, it's a clear indication um, of that the Iranians are pulling the strings in all of this. Yeah, and this goes back years. I mean, I remember when you were embedded in Iraq, Bill, the, the reporting you were doing on the Iranian rat lines that were in Iraq at the time where they were building up sort of their, again, concurrently building up their military or terrorist infrastructure along their political infrastructure. And you had these maps that the U.S. military was producing, I think, uh, based on what those rat lines look like. And basically, I don't think they ever went away. They just kept regenerating them, uh, you know, when certain, you know, key figures were taken out or perished for some, one reason or another. They had other guys in their place. And it's to replace them, it sort of speaks to the whole problem here. I mean, we talk about on the Sunni side a lot that we don't really know, you know, how many Al-Qaeda leaders there are or how many ISIS leaders there are. They're always, we're always trumpeting these sort of senior figures who were killed. But with any insurgency or any sort of revolutionary type group, you know, these, these sort of high value targeting, they're sort of necessary, but not sufficient to defeat them. And of course, there's very limited targeting of Iran's proxies, really, and their proxy leaders throughout the region anyway. So, you know, Bill, speak a little bit about those rat line uh, maps. Yeah. And I'll go back in time. I think because I think that was telling about what was going on. It was sort of the, the, the U.S. sort of for a moment anyway, for a limited period of time, got that they had a sort of a two-pronged problem in Iraq, both from the Sunni side and the Shiite side. And it was the Shiite side, I think, is still not really fully understood. Yeah, and, and so along with the surge, you know, everyone says the surge was designed to defeat al-Qaeda in Iraq and give the Iraqi government space. Um, it was also designed, designed to, to target and defeat that Shia insurgency as well. And so in 2000, early 2007, uh, someone leaked to me a map of what these rat lines look like. It was all, you know, and yeah, as you mentioned, right, we could target, we could kill um, fighters on the ground, we could kill senior leaders. But without that safe haven, without addressing the issue of the safe haven, it really, you know, we were really playing a version of whack-a-mole. And what the what this map um, showed was Iran's, the military, U.S. military had a very clear picture of what this network looked like from Baghdad all the way south down to Basra. And you would see training camps and, and storage facilities inside of Iranian cities and towns along the border. And then they would preposition across the border then they would move the these these uh these storage sites or these munition sites uh cat weapons caches they put that forward and then there would be attack zones and the u.s military actually in, in beginning in 2007 and through to about 2010 was along with the iraqi military surprisingly was heavily targeting the, the shia groups they targeted them so um so badly that solder and all of basically all the militia leaders just bugged out and they of course bugged out to Iran they laid low and then once the US withdrew um, the um, they started filtering back into Iraq and within two years their their influence spread and their their militias came back and this was all directed by a what was known as the Ramadan Corps it still is known as that that's the IRGC um, core that is assigned to deal with the Sunni insurgency and as well as dealing with the political and cultural and religious aspects of uh, expanding Iranian influence inside of Iraq. Yeah, it's a pretty grim picture, obviously, uh, moving forward. Um, 
in any event, so let's move on to the next story. Let's move on to these infographics we've been tracking that Al-Qaeda has been putting out on their websites, including Imad, one of their newer websites or forums they have. Bill, you know, uh, one of the things that we've been the minority report on for years is, of course, Al-Qaeda's presence in Afghanistan. And we could definitely filibuster this week and probably every week on this episode because it's a it's an issue that's near and dear to our hearts. But I think uh, just in brief, what's interesting, when we, we saw these infographics go out from Al-Qaeda, and just for listeners to understand, put this in perspective a little bit, Al-Qaeda usually doesn't advertise their presence in Af- Afghanistan. There's an old article that Al-Qaeda put out a while ago, a while ago, which basically their policy is something they call not standing out. They realize that if they just don't announce their presence in different places, that that will be enough to fool a lot of people and be, be fine. Okay, so be it. We, we think that this basically worked, uh, this pretty simple tactic. But they've started advertising their presence through these these infographics that Thabat has put out, which uh, which is this Al-Qaeda-affiliated sort of media group. It's, we say Al-Qaeda-affiliated. It probably is part of Al-Qaeda, but of course they are a little... Sometimes they play little games on what, what media establishments are really theirs and aren't and supposedly independent and that sort of thing. But, you know, these infographics are interesting because they're highlighting... Um, Al-Qaeda's global network and the attacks around the world. So you're talking about in Afghanistan, West Africa, East Africa, Pakistan, Somalia, Syria, and Yemen. None of that sounds like an organization that's a shadow of its former self, uh, which is a common talking point we've seen repeated by American leadership through the years. Um, but the interesting thing for us was how many attacks they claimed in Afghanistan, because what they're saying is that they, they Al-Qaeda is saying, in effect, that they carried out more operations in Afghanistan in the month of March than anywhere else. Um, that's Noteworthy, right, Bill? They don't usually say that sort of thing, and that's certainly something new. I mean, that they would say that it, it's it is stunning. I mean, we uh, occasionally they slip up and issue a, a video to show an operation, but they Al Qaeda is not advertising its presence because Al Qaeda actually supports the Taliban's efforts to negotiate with the United States in order to get the United States to leave. That's what the Taliban calls it—a withdrawal deal. And Al-Qaeda is happy to keep its presence hidden if it achieves that goal. It'll do it whether if they have to fight their way to make it happen, if they have to stay silent on their operations. Their only goal is to get the U.S. to leave so the Taliban can reestablish its emirate. If, the, if, Al, if Al-Qaeda's presence is known and they're advertising hundreds of attacks— And Tom, how many attacks did Al-Qaeda advertise? Over so, the last the, month? so so according to these infographics in the and of course again a big asterisk here we can't verify these numbers we don't know that they're true we're just saying it's interesting that they're making this claim and we think that there's some validity to it they claimed over 340 operations and killing more than 500 Afghan forces usually the casualty figures are are inflated but uh, for their own sort of self puffery that these these jihadis are very interested in but the 340 plus operations is a lot right bill i mean that's a lot of operations and and they also claimed that they were involved in overrunning 11 security checkpoints now there's no way that this level of activity would occur without the taliban's blessing or without these being joint taliban al qaeda operations and that underscores the point we've been saying all along which a lot of policymakers have missed is that al qaeda is deeply embedded in the taliban insurgency and we the us government has failed the us military and intelligence services have failed to uproot al-Qaeda from the Taliban insurgency. Yeah, and that's and that's the key. That's what the, the Taliban has embedded itself inside the Taliban's military operations and various designations of Taliban 
um, or Al-Qaeda military commanders, Al-Qaeda bomb makers and whatnot, you see this. They they explicitly state that the Taliban is, is, is a force multiplier. I'm sorry, Al-Qaeda is a force multiplier for the Taliban by acting as advisors and trainers and all of those things. We see glimpses of this, like when, and it's not just Al-Qaeda, right? It's the Turkestan Islamic Party. It's the Islamic Jihad Union. It's, you know, I could go on and on in the various they a, they groups. Have, they have a whole pantheon of groups that are not accounted for in any of the, the or you are rarely accounted for in sort of the what is Al Qaeda sort of right. bucket. And, you, and know, you and I, mean, I, you and I know. Right. I mean, look, we know at the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan before it split was a key part of Al Qaeda. We know that the Turkestan Islamic Party, a key part of Al Qaeda, they they view it as a net, a, a jihadist network. And it's and the TIP, uh, the T- Turkestan Islamic Party, is still functioning in Badakhshan and elsewhere. Yes, I mean, it's still, exactly. it's still, it's still a big part. Not a big part, but it still, it still plays a role in the insurgency in the Taliban-led insurgency. And they openly signal their allegiance to Al Qaeda and the Taliban. I mean, there's really no dispute that this is what this group is. I mean, some try and dispute it, but it's just foolish. But the bottom line is, when you look at all this stuff, I mean, you still have you know Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who I've been flogging recently on the Afghanistan front because of this uh, withdrawal deal with the Taliban and sort of the assurances he's made on behalf. Of the Taliban, which is really putting words in the Taliban's mouth, um, you know, he recently claimed there are only there are less than several hundred sort of Al Qaeda fighters in Afghanistan. And Bill, I mean, I mean, how long do we have to cover this? Nobody knows how many Al Qaeda fighters are in Afghanistan, right? I mean, this is ridiculous. I mean, second, f- f- uh, that's the first point. Nobody knows. This has been going back years. Nobody's gotten the number right for years. Second thing is. Um, less than several hundred, actually the several hundred, actually the assessments we see that they do make are several hundred, three to 600 coming out of the U S military and other forces. So it's not less than several hundred, it's actually several hundred, but that doesn't include all the groups you were just mentioning and others. I mean, you've got, the point is, and we're going to get into this in the next little bit here, because this video is sort of, it's sort of a juicy target for us to sort of focus on in terms of proving our point. Al Qaeda has these relationships that leverages with all these groups in the region that are often not accounted for when you talk about you know how big Al Qaeda is, how big is it is it financially, how big is it in terms of you know war fighting or operations, and 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 basically there are basic epistemological issues here that haven't been fixed since since I don't know when, basically since the beginning, right, Bill? Yeah, and I I don't know how many times we've told this story, and I'm going to just tell it really quick here. In 2010, um, I believe it was uh, Leon Panetta who was I at that time, Secretary of Defense, or he was CIA. I recall, I, I, I don't recall which. He made he an CIA, estimate. He was, CIA, he was CIA director. CIA at that time, yeah. okay. And he he estimated there was 50 to 100 Al-Qaeda fighters. This was on ABC in, this week, yeah. Yes. Went on ABC this week, yeah. This number kept getting repeated. We're, one of the things we did is we tracked U.S. military operations against the Al-Qaeda. You'd see 47 Al-Qaeda killed in a camp in, Kun, in a Kunar, 10 here, 5 detained, this, that. So we start looking at this going, there's something not right. And then every every time they spoke, every year that number never changed, 50 to 100, 50 to 100, 50 to 100. And we're looking at it going, and we're looking at operations spanning over half the provinces in multi in, in probably about 60 to 70 districts there's no way that al-qaeda can be spread this thin and being killed or captured at the levels the u.s military was reporting on now by the middle of 2013 the military just stopped reporting on it i've been told that that was partly because of our reporting at the long war journal that it just uh, it was sort of killing this narrative because look there had to be only 50 to 100 al-qaeda if the obama bill bill wait a minute wanted wait to pull minute. out of afghanistan are you saying big dod was not honest about what was going on in afghanistan i mean how how can that be 
right? I mean, how it's can shocking, they, but true. Yeah, it's, I mean, how, I mean, are you telling me that the assessments have been wrong for years and nobody knows what the hell they're doing? I mean, how's that possible? No. You know, you know and, and the sad thing is, is there's very fine individuals within DOD and within the intelligence that do know the right answer to this. Yeah, and they're, and they're, not, they're overridden not for political. They're, yeah, they're not representing yeah. the senior ranks. Yeah, exactly. So. And and so what happens is um, then all, all of a sudden in October 2016, uh, the U.S. military t- conducts a raid against 2015. Al- yeah, oh, I'm sorry, 2015. Yeah, yep. two Al Qaeda camps in a district called Shorabak in in Kandahar. This is a d- district right along the border in, of Baluchistan province in Pakistan. Um, one of these camps was later described as Al Qaeda's largest camps in nine, since 9/11. Not in Afghanistan, but Al Qaeda's largest camp anywhere in the world since 9/11, and. Um, they the number I believe that was given I heard anywhere from 150 to 200 Al Qaeda fighters were killed during this operation, and killed then or the military yeah yeah killed or captured right then the number has changed upwards well maybe it's upwards of 300, and then you and I are sitting here saying you mean the, assess- you- the assessment changed from 50 to 100 they basically added the capacity yeah. of the Shorebot camps and <laughs> yeah. said okay maybe it's up to 300 okay thanks guys uh, yeah you know and, and, and never, our answer never, to that is yeah maybe you don't know what you're talking about right, right. but like, they, yeah. they didn't but they didn't go back to the the fundamentals that's the point i mean yeah. this is the thing you know I, I always imagine you know this is probably self-aggrandizing but if ken burns were to ever sit down and say hey guys i want to do a documentary on the the afghan war I'd say, Ken, do we have a story for you? Uh, you know, and it would basically be, you know, there's a lot of aspects to this war, but you know what? Uh, guess what? The U.S. government hasn't been able to count al-Qaeda or actually figure out what al-Qaeda looks like in Afghanistan for years, uh, for as long as we can remember. Um, and it's basically, they're just not going to get it right. I, I've given up on trying to get get a, official assessments to actually reflect basic facts, and that's sort of how you know the war is basically lost. Um but in any event, you know, so we still now we have you know senior Trump administration officials, you know, citing these estimates as if they they prove something and they don't. But you know, what's great is that they're not great. It's, it's horrific, but it's it's the truth of the matter is that the Jihadis are going to keep fighting anyway, and they're going to still they're going to start revealing more and more of what they're doing in Afghanistan as we as, we, as U.S. pulls out. And you know, this bill this this Pakistani Taliban video that came out um, just recently, this sort of was a video that highlighted so much of what we've talked about in terms of how al-Qaeda is embedded within the fabric of these groups, and this is what makes it difficult to account for uh, and, and, and leads to some of the epistemological problems we've highlighted. And why don't you talk a little bit about this video, because I know you got excited when you saw it, just because not because it was groundbreaking in terms of content, but because they just were putting it out there, right, in terms of visuals that justified or illustrated, I'll say, our analysis through the years. Yeah. yeah, so look, in, in uh, last week in episode five of Generation Jihad, which is banned in Pakistan, uh, if you recall, Long War Journal, we've been banned in Pakistan for eight years for our uh, our reporting on all of the problems there. Tom and I, we delved into that murky and incestuous world of the Pakistani and Afghan jihadist groups, uh, Pakistan's role in keeping them afloat, the, the, the wheel of jihad, and as if by fate, um, the day— um, the day that banned in Pakistan dropped, uh, the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan released a video tribute to Taqi Mullah Massoud. 
He, Hakeem Mullah was the second emir of the movement, movement of the Taliban in Pakistan and arguably the most influential. He was the guy responsible for a, the takeover of all of the Fatah, the tri- tribal agencies, and expanded operations into the Northwest Frontier Province, brought in more fighters, brought, you know, conducted attacks against like general headquarters in Rawalpindi against the Pakistani military, horrific suicide attacks. A very effective. Um, the U.S. eventually killed him in 2013 in a drone strike. But by um, the way, this, this is why this is why we call it the Wheel of Jihad, right? I mean, so the idea here is that this video demonstrates, and the operations you just rattled off demonstrate that the Pakistani establishment, military intelligence establishment, supports certain jihadist groups, including the Afghan Taliban and others, that are allied with the Pakistani Taliban. So the, take the Haqqanis, for example, and Sir Judan Haqqani, Siraj Haqqani, is featured in this video with his face mysteriously blurred out once again, standing behind Hakamul Masood praying. Um, but Siraj Haqqani runs a network that's supported and is very cozy with the, the Pakistani military intelligence establishment. Meanwhile, he's in bed with Hakamul Masood and his successors in the Pakistani Taliban who are attacking the Pakistani state. So this is the wheel of jihad, right? I mean, the Pakistani state supports certain Taliban guys, which you you explained last week so eloquently or in terms of this good Taliban versus bad Taliban mantra they have. Um, but the good Taliban's in bed with the bad Taliban that's coming back against the Pakistani state. So it's, this is why it's the wheel of jihad. Yeah, it, 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 it was... It was beautiful, not because of the the video itself. I mean, these guys are land pirate with with pirates with uh, horrible grooming habits. But you know, from our, our perspective as analysis, this just confirms everything we're talking about. Uh, not only Mullah Sangin Zadran, he was the he's the he used to be the Taliban's uh, shadow governor in Paktika province in Afghanistan. He is a deputy. He was a deputy to Siraj Khani. He's meeting with. Um, with Haki Mullah Masood. And it's a very, you know, all these meetings, by the way, very collegiate. You, they're laughing and exchanging jokes and, and you know, uh, putting on their scarf and all this, all this stuff. You know, uh, uh, just yet, you know, you don't have these meetings, these relationships without very close groups. And we've seen it over time. We've seen press reports of the the Haqqanis coming in to settle disputes between at one point there was a dispute between the Masood tribe and members of the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan over some settlement issues. The Haqqanis come in and iron out these these types of issues. And when you see these videos, you you're like, yeah, we know, we know the answer here. Um, so. You know, this is, um, you know, there's another aspect in here, Tom, and they, and there's one scene where they talk about how early on, and this was after the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, how they, they, they're getting fighters from around the world, including Arabs, and that's, of course, is um, a, a nod to the, to Al-Qaeda, that's how they refer to Al-Qaeda, you see, and you'll see a, an individual name is Tahir Yuldashev in, in this video, they highlight him. He's used to be the head of the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, which is by all accounts, uh, not by all accounts, it was an Al-Qaeda branch, an Al-Qaeda affiliate, basically Al-Qaeda's uh, branch in Uzbekistan. Although some, some have tried to dispute that, but there's, you know, it's, it's funny. There's, In fact, one of the things that the Bin Laden files, it's funny, is that uh, there was one of these texts that came from a jihadi that was sort of disputing the IMU, the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan's 
ties and relationship with Al-Qaeda was sort of the Al-Qaeda response to that. It was pretty funny, actually. Saying, yes. You know, saying, you know, just responding to the author saying, wait a minute, buddy, you know that we, you know, sponsored them and funded <laughs> them and trained them. What are you talking about? You know, but again, IMU, I mean, which went through, it went through these several iterations and has been broken up because of the, the ISIS, you know, basically the leader of IMU defected ISIS at one point. He then gets hunted down by the Taliban suspiciously enough uh, on behalf of Al-Qaeda, obviously, um, and then splits and then IMU is reorganized. There's a whole history here on this, on this group, but, but the bottom line is that this was a group that there's plenty of evidence that it was within the Al-Qaeda fold, that it's sort of remnants or restructured, or how it's reconstituted now in the region is almost certainly still in the Al-Qaeda fold. And again, it's another example of where this is the type of thing that was not and has not been accurately assessed or put into assessments of Al-Qaeda's strength in the region. And this video shows you these guys, all these guys coming together sort of under one banner. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really... You know, again, it's nothing we don't know. I mean, I, I remember I saw a couple comments on on Twitter going, well, duh. I mean, but yes, but it's very rare that they show you this. That they, There's one where Hakimullah and Tahir Yildashev, and we believe another commander of the IMU, who later rose to be their military commander. Now, Yildashev was killed in 2009, um, so this had to be before then. It shows you basically what, what I have no other way to interpret it is we just looked at a deputies meeting there because at that time that video was taken, Haki Mouli was the uh, deputy emir to Beitullah Masood, the founder of the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan. To hear Yildashev, while head of the IMU, he's an al-Qaeda representative. He's probably on their shura, um, or if not, le- you know, leading in another capacity. You just don't see that. They don't advertise this in that type of way, in, in, that type of way, in their day-to-day propaganda. It usually takes something like a, a, a video tribute to Hakimullah Masood in order for, for us to, to glean this information. And Hakimullah Massoud, just for brief context, is the guy who, as leader of Pakistani Taliban, and of course this video highlights the Pakistani Taliban's attacks or plots against the U.S., including the Times Square bombing, attempted Times Square bombing in 2010, I think it was, May 2010. Yeah, May I mean, 2010. Ha- yeah, Hakimullah Massoud is the is the guy who is uh, interested in giving you personally, Bill, a hat tip to say that we did this. We talked about this before, so we don't need to get go into all the details again. But you know, it's there's sort of an interesting personal angle watching this video. I mean, this is when the, when the the bombing happens in Times Square and everybody's trying to figure out who did it. This guy had his media team send you the video saying the Pakistani Taliban did it. So that's why it was an interesting thing. But, you know, you mentioned too, Bill, that we came out with Band in Pakistan, the fifth episode last week of, of Generation Jihad. And this video drops concurrently with that episode. You know what What this video also concurrently dropped with by the Pakistani Taliban? It dropped with um, Zalmay Khalilazad and General Miller going to meet with the Pakistani military establishment in Pakistan, Islamabad. <laughs> and these guys, uh, they put out a statement from the U.S. Embassy there basically praising Pakistan's efforts and the so-called peace efforts here with the Taliban. And I just thought it was somewhat ironic because you have this Pakistani Taliban video come out the same day. And, of course, Siraj Akhani is featured heavily there with Hakamullah Massoud. And Siraj is the Pakistani's guy. I mean, they, Haqqani's they, been in bed with the ISI, the military intelligence establishment in Pakistan for years. And so here you have the crux of the problem. You have the U.S. now... And, and certainly Khalilazad, as you highlighted, knows better, and certainly other U.S. officials should know better, that the Pakistani military establishment uh, sort of sits at the top of this sort of wheel of jihad, sponsoring the Haqqanis, who are then in bed with all these guys. Um, and it just sort of illustrates the whole problem, right, in the whole war, and, and basically why this effort is, is as screwed up as it is. Yeah, and one more quick point on this. This video also shows the early days um, of the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, the uh, the Pakistani Taliban, so Haki Mullah and another guy named Abdullah Masood, who basically was the the leader of, he was a 
uh, Gitmo detainee, by the way. Once we freed him, he came back and organized 5,000 fighters, brought them into Afghanistan. Hockey Mullah came with them. They fought alongside a, a commander named Mullah Dadula, um, who was arguably the most influential uh, Afghan Taliban military commander. He's revered. There's a, a I think group. he was. He was also wasn't Dadula. He was also very fond of Al Qaeda from his public. Well, absolutely, the Mullah Dadula front um, mimics Al Qaeda's. Um, uh, suicide tactics, but also shelters Al-Qaeda. Um, look, when we killed Asim Umar in Helmand, you can bet that that was the Mullah Dadullah front that was sheltering uh, Asim Umar, who was the head of Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent. That that legacy lives on. So, you know, it, it, it shows those really direct ties, you know, not because, you know, look, people want to say Siraj Akhani. Well, he's really he's really uh, just part of his own group. Well, no, he's the deputy mayor of the Afghan Taliban. But it's not just the Haqqani network. These guys went in, fought alongside Afghan Taliban commanders. They said they fought in Helmand and Paktika and Aruzgan and Kandahar and and Coast. And so they, you know, this this these Taliban groups are. They're operating on both sides of the border. They're a threat to both countries. And Pakistan's playing favorites amongst the Taliban's is, is um, you know, they've tried to ride that tiger and they're directly complicit in the murder of their own citizens. So I think uh, one last thing on this video, I think there were some Turkestan Islamic Party guys in there too. I'm not sure if we mentioned that. I think yes. that, is that, did we, did we identify them? I don't even We was not able to identify, no. I, it, it, I have some suspicions, but, you know, I hate to make, um, uh, in any event, we, we know from other reports anyway that TIP, the Turkish yeah. Islamic Party, they, they're embedded in the fabric of all this just as well. But it just it just underscores again and highlights sort of the sort of, uh, you know, I don't know, cross-pollination between these groups in northern Pakistan and Afghanistan. Um, in any event, you know, so so we got that. There's a nice cheery Pakistani Taliban uh, video, which you can see Bill and Caleb Weiss, who works with us on this stuff. They wrote up and had a nice write-up about the video. I'm going to do some more, I think, on Siraj Akhani and how that sort of disproves the whole Taliban, his whole role in this, and how that disproves the Taliban withdrawal deal that uh, the State Department has been pitching. Finally, you know, we got an ISIS update this week. And this came across the wires in the last 24 to 36 hours before we started uh, working on the sort of outline for what we were going to talk about this week. And this is pretty interesting. The German government says that they've broke up a plot by four suspected ISIS members uh, who were planning to attack American military bases or facilities in Germany itself. Now, all four of them have been identified as citizens of Tajikistan, and their ringleader is an imprisoned jihadist who is also from Tajikistan. Now, these guys supposedly joined ISIS, according, again, these are all allegations, uh, in January 2019. So that's, that makes them latecomers to the game. You think about joining ISIS in January 2019, you're not exactly joining the winning caliphate at that point. Uh, but in any event, they, they joined in January 2019, according to German prosecutors. And their cell leader, the guy who's sort of pulling the strings on this stuff, he's in prison just a few months later in March 2019. But apparently they keep on plotting. They keep on going. And eventually, you know, at first they have sort of this idea to go after Americans in Tajikistan. And then they ultimately decide to go after American military personnel in Germany, according to what the German government is saying. Now, there are several aspects of this that are interesting. Um the first one is the German government says these guys were in touch with two senior members, ISIS members in Syria and Afghanistan. Now, Bill, that sort of illustrates again, assuming that's true, and of course they haven't, I haven't seen ident- these two senior members identified yet, but it shows you yet another example of where 
you know, what happens in Afghanistan doesn't stay in Afghanistan, regardless of what Secretary Pompeo and Zalmay Kolozai will tell you about their Taliban deal, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, we, so, you know, you have a couple of groups that are, that were Afghan based, the Iman Barkhadi Brigade and Islamic Movement Uzbekistan that have branches inside of, um, inside of Syria and they're active and they issue information. And I and also, would, and also in Afghanistan and yes, we, yes. As, as you, as you documented back in the days, the Uzbeks were involved in those plots in Germany themselves. Yeah. Al Qaeda, you know, you, you read my mind. I mean, there's, this isn't, this isn't the first time we've seen something like this. So I suspect that this is all part of that network. And we have to remember the Islamic movement, Uzbekistan split from uh, split in half and half of it joined the Islamic state. So it probably inherited the, the parts of that network that enabled, you know, the contacts for this for this particular plot to go through. Um, the, yeah, it's 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 really fascinating when you see and, you know, Tom, you said, well, they joined at the time when the, the caliphate's at, at its nadar. But they, these groups don't look at it this way. They don't look at it like, oh, we're losing now. They their timeline isn't this year, next year, three years from now. It's it's 20 years, it's 30 years, it's 50 years. They have they, they realize they know they're the underdogs. It's part of their whole um well also their sometimes whole mythology, you, you know, and uh, that they that they're going to take this fight as long as it takes because and and that's what they they feed off of off of that. Well, it's also the personal aspect of all this. I mean, in this case, they're not Uzbeks, as we've documented in the past. They're actually Tajiks. And I thought that was interesting because there sure. is a there is a Tajikistan story here about what's going on with ISIS, which kind of comes through in several of these recent events. I mean, you have this plot, which was all uh, citizens of Tajikistan. And you remember, Bill, going back to July 2018, you remember when a, a mock news agency, the ISIS news agency, came out with this video of these five young men or adolescents. Some of them yes. maybe even been boys. They had driven their vehicle into these foreign cyclists in Tajikistan. They then jumped out of the car and started stabbing the cyclists with knives. This is sort of the the ISIS mo. They want they want believers everywhere around the world to do this, and they did this. You know, they had a they had a, uh, a follower or an online follower who did this in Ohio State. They've had people do this in London. They've had people do this all over the place. And these guys, this young this team of young men or adolescents or even children, did this in Tajikistan, and they killed four people, including two Americans doing this. And so Amak releases this video of them afterwards of uh, these guys swearing allegiance to Baghdadi. I remember talking about it at the time thinking, you know, uh-oh. You know, that, that, that signifies that they have at least a cell or cells in Tajikistan or of Tajiks. And then, you know, going forward on this, a year later in July 2019, uh, there's this monitoring team that does great work for the U.N. Security Council. Um, you know, even when we don't agree with necessarily all of its conclusions or what it's reporting, there's a lot of meaty details or at least telling what – member states of the UN are, are what they're seeing in terms of what's going on in the jihadi threat. And so these monitoring team reports are always great to, to read, and I recommend everybody do them. We cover them at, Lo- at Longwood Journal when we can. Well, in July 2019, one of these came out, and it had details about ISIS's efforts to recruit a base of Tajiks, uh, in, uh, you know, citizens of Tajikistan in Afghanistan. And it identified one of the premier ISIS Khorasan or Horasan members in Afghanistan as being somebody from Tajikistan and said that he sat on the Shura Council and he had 200 jihadists from his country in Afghanistan under under his control. I mean, that's interesting. I mean, that, that tells you that they've really been building up their their sort of base from Central Asia in Afghanistan. And then they have, on top of that, you know, we've been tracking the role of 
uh, young men from Tajikistan who were involved in attacks in Afghanistan itself, including this March 6th attack in Kabul, where ISIS attacked this memorial service for Abdul Ali Mazari, who was an ethnic Hazara leader who was killed by the Taliban in 1995. But the Taliban doesn't go after these memorial services for Mazari anymore, but ISIS does. This is a couple years now in a row they've gone after this thing in, in this ceremony in Kabul. And dozens were killed or wounded in this attack. And so what's interesting is when they identified who... Um, was responsible. ISIS said that one of them was this guy, Ahmad, I think it was Ahmad al-Tajiki, I think is what, it, what they identified him as. I mean, his Kunya or his Nom de Guerre, basically meaning he's from Tajikistan. So, Bill, there's a story here from Tajikistan with these guys that's connected all the way around the world now, where you can see that, again, you know, what happens in Afghanistan doesn't necessarily stay in Afghanistan. There's a lot of details we have to work out here, but, you know, you can see that ISIS is recruiting from Central Asia just like al Yeah, and has. when you look at what the Russian response to all of this is, is this is sort of what's interesting. Um, you know, Russia often gets accused of hyping up terrorist threats, particularly in the Caucasus, right? They, the big argument was, no, oh, there's no jihadists, they're just separatists, and then, of course— we know that that's true. The Russians are really concerned and are doing things like providing local Taliban groups along the border with arms and and weapons because of this particular problem, this rise of jihadism in the former Soviet republics like to Uzbekistan and Tajikistan and, and, and elsewhere. So, you know, we know there's a problem. You know, we can it, – it's, it's easy to dismiss the Russian concerns – as as overhyping the problem, but yeah, and I mean, look, the Russians do all sorts of nasty we, stuff. I mean, of course, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, they do use. I mean, Putin's used this for his own advantages, and there's there's all sorts of legitimate concerns there. But the right. point is, it doesn't yeah. mean that these guys. Yeah, there are is something honest. in the middle, yeah. and I always we yeah. you know, as you and I discussed numerous times uh, in private conversations, that you know, Chechnya was always there was very radical, violent terrorist groups there that were part of Al Qaeda's network. Um, the Russians brutally suppressed it. Um, but just because there were also uh, Chechen separatists doesn't make a jihadist a separatist. They're diff- they can be different breeds. And yeah, there is a rising problem, with the, particularly in Tajikistan, that needs to be addressed. And then you have you know, another ISIS-related story that popped up in recent days, really earlier this month. The Afghan forces uh, said they, they detained Aslam Farooqi, who they identify as the emir of ISIS Horasan. Now, what's interesting about that is that same report I just mentioned that from the UN monitoring team uh, in July 2019 talked about how Faruqi was actually named as the replacement for his predecessor, a guy known as Abu Amar al-Khorasani, uh, because Khorasani was the ISIS central leadership, the mothership in Iraq and Syria determined that Khorasani had poor performance, basically. He was a sort of an underperforming jihadi leader. And so they named Faruqi as a replacement. This was in that UN report as well. And so that shows you, you know, that's one of, I think, many reports we have now showing that ISIS central leadership does exercise a degree of command and control over its so-called affiliates or provinces at given times. The Afghans identified Faruqi as the guy who was responsible for this attack on a Sikh temple in Kabul in late March, where about more than two dozen civilians were killed. And, you know, just as we were about to start recording today, Bill, what was interesting is you see some reports coming out of Indian press and elsewhere talking about the guys who were around Faruqi um, in his cell and in his operations, including uh, one guy who was, who was being uh, identified. We're going to look into this more probably for future episodes, but a guy who was so there's a long profile going all the way back to the 1990s involved in the Kashmiri jihad and, 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 and separatism there. And what's interesting about that is that, of course, when you looked at this attack on the Sikh temple in Kabul in March, one of the things that came up was that 
um, you know, they identified the attacker, the principal terrorist, as somebody who was from the Indian subcontinent. They gave him the Nom de Guerre al-Hindi, basically, and they said that he was acting in revenge for the Muslim brothers in Kashmir. This again shows that ISIS is using Afghanistan or has designs from Afghanistan on the surrounding Yeah, and uh, by countries. the way, so in, in talking with uh, various individuals and from India, they dispute this. They don't believe that's true. That they believe is that uh, that they use they're using that as a recruiting tool and as a way to sort of pin the blame on on India. Um, now again, Indian security. Um, services have their own reasons for an Indian not to be involved in this attack. But, you know, you have a lot of, sometimes you have wheels within wheels on this, but you're absolutely correct. The, um, the, the fact is, yeah, that the, well, I mean, that I mean, Afghanistan is a jump point for Al Qaeda's operations everywhere and negotiating with the Taliban isn't going to solve this problem. Well, I mean, the other thing is, I mean, I mean, yeah, they could very ISIS could very well be using this to um, to recruit. I mean, I definitely think that's the case, but there's no doubt they have a, a, a sort of upstart presence in Indian control. Yeah, I don't know how anybody could absolutely. deny that. I mean, there's obvious obvious evidence around that. So, I mean, saying they're using this to recruit. OK, fine. Yeah, I, I agree. But that doesn't disprove that they have this presence in Indian control Kashmir. I mean, it's not a major presence. It's not something that rivals really the Pakistani backed jihadist groups. Um, it's not clear in terms of how big Al Qaeda is there, but ISIS has certainly has yeah, a, a presence there. To, to be clear, I was, still, I was merely communicating what I've heard. Now, look, I mean, we know there's been sure. attacks inside India carried out by Indians. You know, there was the Indian Mujahideen, which was basically a front for Lashkari Taiba, but we know that individuals that carried out that attacks were Indian citizens. So, you know, I'm, again, I just wanted to let you know. What we're hearing from what I'm what I'm hearing from outside, and that it's a very controversial issue um, uh, within the Indian uh, security establishment. Yeah, well, all I could say to everybody who's involved in this is the facts are what they are, yeah, and it's always following the facts. And and if, and the reason why the, the Afghan war is as screwed up as it is is because so many American policymakers didn't follow the facts for years, and that's that's a big part of the, part of the reason. Also, of course, this constant turnover and military leadership and others, and we'll have to again. I'm waiting for the call from Ken Burns, <laughs> and hopefully that comes someday. That's that's my <laughs> that's a joke, folks. In any event, uh, so. You know, finally, I, you know, I was going to do a little bit of a segment on this, and I don't really have much to say about this other than just to point to it as a sort of a, a tying a bow on the ISIS part of this this show this week. You know, it's interesting. We've been following all these reports coming out of Syria, and ISIS is, is still engaged in some pretty heavy fighting against the Assad regime and its allies in eastern and central Syria. Um, you know, they're obviously not at the peak of their power in Syria, but there's quite a bit going on there, um, and we're hopefully going to document that coming forward, going forward. Um, but again, it's an example of, you know, you have this you have this case where the Germans say that they just cracked down on a cell couple, uh, comprised of citizens from Tajikistan who were in contact with ISIS leaders in both Syria and Afghanistan, while at the same time ISIS is continuing to fight in, a, in Syria, uh, you know, involved in some pretty heavy fighting. And I just think that's that's sort of a picture of an organization that, yeah, they're not they're not near the peak or the pinnacle of their power. But but boy, oh boy, they're, they're still alive. And they're still in the game. So we'll wrap it up there for this week. Uh, thank you again for listening to this episode of Generation Jihad. 
Um, as Bill and I have said, we're going to have guests in the future. We're still lining them up in the era of the coronavirus. That tends to be a little bit more difficult than you would suspect uh, for making sure that people have the right equipment and make sure the sound is okay for everybody to listen to. Uh, we're, we're trying our best here to work through all of our own little technical glitches. Of course, I am a technophobe, if you know me at all, and there's always a chance that I will screw up everything when it comes to recording these episodes. So uh, Bill and our colleague Phil Hegseth are, have been done, doing wonders to basically keep me on the rails. In any event, uh, please do subscribe to the show if you're a fan of it. If you don't like it, well, then don't subscribe. Uh, and as a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your shows. And we'll see you next week.